like to welcome Dr. Majid Afshar. He's uh, an assistant professor in the pulmonary critical care division and an epidemiologist and a perfect one to instruct us on how to read um, the literature. So thanks. Thanks, Mike. I was flattered to be asked to do this. My mentor says I'm an epi weenie, so I'm still kind of learning. Uh, a lot of the stuff I'm going to share with you today are things that stem from what my mentors have taught me uh, via class, classes I've taken of theirs or studies I've done with them. So uh, a lot of credit goes to them. My outline today is we'll go through the hierarchy of studies, kind of all the different types of studies we encounter. And I'm going to use an example from the Canadian, uh, Canadian Critical Trials Group to kind of go through uh, and putting it in context. And then we'll look at the internal validity of studies, you know, what, what we should look at when the data is collected and what we should look at when the data is analyzed, some of the concepts that I, I had to struggle with and, and figure out as my, uh, during my um, training. And then external validity, we'll look at some how, how the results can be applied and what we should be looking at when they report results and, and maybe calculating our own results from their data. So my mentor keeps telling me that trust no one expects sabotage, and I think that's going to be a, a running theme throughout this talk. I looked it up. It seemed like it came from some physician back in the 60s, um, but uh, it, I think it's a great quote that can be applied in looking at the medical literature. So looking at the hierarchy of studies, I think we've always been told, and, and we've probably some, some shape or form seen this pyramid um, I don't necessarily agree with this pyramid uh, in terms of saying what's the gold standard being a randomized controlled trial. I think there's a purpose for each study, and you can't have a good randomized controlled trial without having a lot of observational good studies prior to that randomized controlled trial. Uh, RCTs do serve a purpose, though. I think they're looking at therapeutic interventions. Um, the, probably the best method to do it is, is via an RCT and an intent to treat analysis. And you'll see a lot of RCTs done on the same topic. and the authors will try and uh, put together a systematic review, or if they have enough uh, uh, homogenous data, they'll try and do analysis of all the data and, and do a meta-analysis. So maybe at, at, in that respect, it's kind of at the top of the pyramid. But as we move down, you know, there are lots of different observational studies that we, we probably have performed ourselves or will come across more so in the literature. Uh, these are cohort studies. Uh, these are studies where you look at exposures and you follow out for an outcome, whether that's prospective or retrospective. Um, and then case control studies where you actually identify the disease or the outcome and you go back and look at maybe some of the variables or exposures that occurred. And those are more common for rarities, things that don't uh, commonly occur that are difficult to study. But these observational studies, you know, they are a lot some, you know, a lot less costly, you know, in terms of doing uh, compared to an RCT. They can look at multiple exposures and variables at, at the same time. Um, they're things that we can do ourselves. And they answer questions that aren't just about therapeutic interventions, but could be about etiology, diagnosis, adverse effects, um, and so on. But as we get down this pyramid, what's introduced into a lot of these studies are, are different biases and different issues with the analyses that I'm going to try and introduce during this talk. And then lastly, is I, I'm sure we've all done case reports or case studies. Um, but these in themselves are important. They're hypothesis generating. You know, I don't think we could have come as far of understanding HIV without having case reports about PCP prior. So kind of putting this in context, I think one of the best examples that I like to follow, um, <clears throat> and there's a good paper on this as well, is what the Canadian Critical Trials Group has done. Uh, Deborah Cook, a famous epidemiologist in our field, uh, looking back in the late 80s, early 90s, what we do now every day in ICU, which is giving stress also prophylaxis. We don't think twice about it anymore, um, but there was a lot of question about it back in the day. 
Um, and this was a landmark study, but there was a lot in the background of this study. And actually, it, it took a course of 10 to 11 years before they actually developed and produced this study. And this group illustrates how an integrated research program was developed by observational studies conducted both before and after the RCT, evaluating two drugs that were used for stress ulcer prophylaxis. So back during this time in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, sucralfate was commonly used, and it wasn't clear whether that was better than an H2 uh, blocker like ranitidine. So the setting they set up, they went ahead and did their meta-analysis at the time, and there was a bunch of RCTs already available on this topic. But the problem was that they had a lot of methodological differences. There were small sample sizes. This was back when intent to treat wasn't kind of the standard for doing an RCT, and few were, were blinded as well. And they, they saw that H2 blockers were superior to no prophylaxis. Okay, that was kind of starting to become accepted. But sucrophate thought to be as, as effective H2 blockers. And when they looked at ventilator-associated pneumonias, maybe sucrophate was better for that and, and that it occurred less in those, in those types. So first they needed to ask the question is what is, what is significant for stress also prophylaxis? So what is um, uh, important GI bleeding? So they, they kind of came up with definition with what's considered clinically important GI bleeding as associated with hypotension and transfusion of two units of blood. And this was just uh, 100 patients. This was a prospective observational study. And they compared that to maybe any kind of bleeding, which is kind of the overt bleeding you might see in NG tube, or you might see blood that nurses call you to bedside, like this guy's having a GI bleed, and there's some blood in, in the NG, and you're not quite so sure. So in these 100 patients, the overt bleeding occurred 9% of the time, and clinically important bleeding occurred 2% of the time. So if you were to take that 2% and do a 75% power and try and identify this drug as having a relative risk reduction of sucrophate over H2 blockers of, 75, of 25%, you'd need 19,000 patients to eventually find, to find your uh, expected um, results. So that obviously wasn't feasible. So they, they went back and, and did a prospective multi-center cohort study, and they looked at 2,200 patients to identify what are some of the risk factors and, and what can they focus on in, in the population. And again, it was around 2% of clinically important bleeding. And they saw that 40 hours of mechanical ventilation was really what carried the, the greatest odds uh, of, of developing clinically important bleeding versus the control, the control group. And in coagulopathy, there was an issue as well. And those 800-some patients that had that, the bleeding rate was much higher. It was nearly 4%, whereas the majority of the others, it was 0.1%. So put that in the context of your patients. I mean, we kind of just go ahead and put people on H2 blockers in ICU, but really we should be thinking more about who has the risk factors for that, because this was, this was where the study came from, but culture is kind of just, we've kind of forgotten the study and kind of accepted the way we've been trained. So they focused on these patients for two days of mechanical ventilation. So then the next question is, is you know, is the study warranted? So they did a matched cohort study, and they looked at that those um, that received prophylaxis uh, versus those that didn't, those that didn't, ICU stay increased by six some days, there was increase in mortality, and the cost was substantial at the time. In the 90s, that's 12,000 Canadian dollars, which I don't know how much that would have been. Um, so they thought that, you know, the conclusion was an RCT look at preventive strategies was justified. So by the time they had done all this, I think five-some years had gone by, and uh, there's already been over 100 RCTs on the topic. And over these 100 RCTs, there have been variable definitions and approaches. At the top, you can see that versus the... Pro the uh, prophylaxis, the no prophylaxis, that really was an issue. There was obviously something to be found in the drug to be taken. But the sucrophate appeared equivalent to H2 blockers and appeared to have lower uh, incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia. 
So they kind of wanted to focus on that, identifying H2 blockers versus surgical fate, saying that maybe the 25% the risk reduction in ventilator pneumonia and also in clinically important GI bleeding. There you have it. So they identify with that. They can do a study with 1,200 ICU patients, and that's what led to the New England Journal publication um, in the late 90s that identified uh, what we commonly are using today. So they compared H2 blockers versus sucralfate with respect to clinically important bleeding and venereal-associated pneumonia. They did intent to treat. It was well blinded. It was blinded well. It was um, allocated appropriately. 1,200 ICU patients, 16 centers. And what they saw was actually ranitidine was better than sucralfate. And the bleeding rate was decreased with a relative risk of 0.4. And they had similar rates of venereal pneumonia, but maybe a little bit of a trend uh, in the H2 blocker groups. And there was no difference in mortality or uh, ICU length of stay. So there was discord, uh, excuse me, discordance and concordance from what had been previously shown. Discordance being that no sucralfate wasn't equivalent. In fact, H2 blockers are better, and that's probably why we don't use sucralfate anymore today. And the concordance was, yeah, there might have been a trend towards uh, ventilator-assisted pneumonia in those H2 blocker group, but it wasn't clear from this study. So I'm going to kind of stop here, but say that this RCT, this Sentinel uh, study, led to much more observational studies trying to identify what is the ventilator-assisted pneumonia risk. And they went on to spend several more years looking at this question. And this, all this put together was multi-millions of dollars, a huge group, a, 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 a countrywide effort, and... Um, 12 years of, of work. So I think that kind of puts things into context. Not all, all, all RCTs are right. Um, I think we'll see something that gets published with a high-impact journal, and we're quick to start to think about changing our, our practice. This was a nice study out of JAMA where they looked at three major journals, I think JAMA, Lancet, New England Journal, with high-impact factors um, as reported by the Institute for Scientific, Scientific Information that were cited more than a 1,000 times. They compared against subsequent studies that were similar in size and maybe different or better controlled and maybe weren't so highly cited. And what they found, they found 34 studies in this category, some of them from our Blue Journal, which is the uh, big critical care journal in Palm Critical Care. And 41% of these were contra uh, con uh, contradicted or grossly exaggerated. And 58, 59% were consistent. So you can see... Um, it's not golden. And our experience, you know, NO, nitric oxide, was included in this. A bunch of drugs for sepsis that were included in this, which to this date we still, you know, there's been dozens of drugs that we haven't identified. I think in our experience as fellows, I can remember as a resident growing up, in training Zygris, activated protein C, we commonly gave. It was expensive. It was part of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. It was a lot of issues in terms of how it was studied because it was funded, it was biased with the private industry, and now Power Shock just came out a couple years ago that shows that no, this this isn't useful and it was taken off the market and now we can't even use it anymore. So uh, I think that's that's our example from from our standpoint. So let's look closely at issues with these studies, internal validity of these studies. So random error. So this obviously is unavoidable. This depends on chance. It's minimized by increasing your sample size, but these are the law of small numbers. I, I flip a coin ten times, I'll get head seven of those ten times. I'll start thinking, oh, this, this is more likely to get head. But if I do it a thousand times, it, it, it becomes obvious that it's 50-50, no matter how you look at it. Um, and I've tried to beat these odds at casinos, and I always lose. <laughs> 
And then there's systematic error. There's the bias that, that does occur. And that's, this is independent of sample size. And, and the two major categories I want to discuss with you guys is selection bias and information bias. And I think a lot of you are familiar with this, but uh, um, it's, it's in the context of the internal validity of a study. So survival bias. This, you look at a cohort of, of 20 people. This, this is a diagram that kind of um, illustrates that. And four have moderate disease, four have severe disease. I do a cross-sectional study at time T1, and where the risk should be one in terms of the ratio, I find that two of those uh, moderate disease were, um, were accounted for and only one with severe disease. So now all of a sudden I have a ratio of 0.5 of severe to moderate disease. And this is a survival bias, and, and I didn't capture maybe the, the true incidence, and I was looking at just one, one, one point in time. Loss to follow-up bias. Uh, this happens um, in prospective studies. Subjects are feeling fine or, or non-compliant. They don't come back, and we miss those, those, uh, those patients and knowing what happened to them. Publication bias. So this is your classic uh, funnel plot. And the idea here is that it should look like that diagram on the right. But what we actually probably see is what's on the left, which is when you look at the measures of, of effect on the y-axis, showing positive studies and negative studies with small sample size. If you did a study of you know, 50 patients and you found something interesting, you're more, you, you'll probably want to publish that. But if you didn't and it wasn't anything interesting, it more likely won't get published. And so you don't see those negative studies being published. And that's where you see the bias, where it should look like what's on the right, where everything kind of gets published. And then we capture both positive and, and negative studies, and especially as you go out in the sample size. So on that note, I think there is a bias in funding with the publication bias. Um, this was a nice study out of JAMA that looked at a bunch of um, drug RCTs out of Cochrane Review, 370 of them, 25 Cochrane Reviews. And the, they scored it according to how the authors concluded on those studies, whether they thought it was a new standard of care or it really didn't change and it was, not, it was inferior to, to what was already being done. And you can see in this, in this box here that the for-profit studies, the ones that were sponsored by industry, there tended to be a lot more of those scores of six, and the median score was six, um, and what they thought was, was new standards of care. Whereas those that were not-for-profit, the median score was lower, and there was a lot more of those negative studies being published. And when they actually did adjustments and looking at treatment effects and the blinding and different method methodologies, the odds ratio was still high that funding source in itself influenced the conclusion of the study. And I think the take-home point to this is that if, if you are concerned about a, a, a study or interested in learning more about it, go to the clinicaltrials.gov. Nowadays, it's, it's standard practice that if you're going to do an RCT, you have to register with clinicaltrials.gov. And you can go and see what's being available, what's been done and, and never got published. Uh, uh, per se, and, and this might be one way to investigate um, some truth. Now we go on to the second type of bias, category bias, information bias. Within that, there is non-differential versus differential. Non-differential occurs when the misclassification of the exposure is independent of the disease status. So this leads to underestimation of the strength, so the odds ratio and relative risk tend to go towards one. Um, Whereas differential is that occurs when the um, misclassification exposure differs between the cases and controls, and this can lead to an overestimation of your results. Recall bias, you know, those who are diseased are more likely to remember variables or exposures that might help to identify um, things and, and bias the results. 
interviewer bias, um, if the person capturing the results is not blinded to the patient or if they are emphasizing certain points to the patient or if um, maybe asking leading questions. This is where it's important to have standardized questions for, these pa for, your, for patients in the study. Observer bias, you know, you take a kidney biopsy down to the pathologist and, and give him a history of, of hypertension and, and long-standing, and he might be more um, inclined to give you a probable diagnosis that's hypertension-related kidney disease. So when you see that probable category, um, you may want to consider observer bias. Uh, regression dilution bias, this is, you know, if I go to Costco, get a prime grade, New York Strip, eat it, drink a bunch of bourbon and wine and, and don't drink, and I wake up the next day and get my creatinine checked, it's 1.6. But in actuality, if I check it over and over again over the next several days, it'll come back to the mean of, of what it really is, which is 1.0. So that's the regression to the mean, and this is a regression dilution bias. Lastly is a lead time bias. This is uh, illustrated here in this diagram. So subject one, they get diagnosed with a mortal dis terminal disease in the symptomatic phase, and they die soon after. So the hospital decides to do a bunch more diagnostics, and, and they happen to catch the second subject at an earlier stage of the disease, but they still die if they, were, if they were caught at the same time as when subject one was. This is what's considered lead time bias. So those are kind of issues that go into data collection biases that, you know, you probably have been familiar with and have encountered. Um, I just want to bring them to surface again. Now, in terms of the data analysis, um, I think one issue that I, I struggled with in my, in my um, analyses was confounding. So a confounder, uh, when you do a study, um, an observational study, is something that has a variable must have an association with the disease, so it affects the outcome of your disease. So it can be a risk factor. And it also has to be associated with the exposure. So it can be unequally distributed between the exposure being the exposed and unexposed group, but it goes both ways. It must not be part of the pathway, whether it's a causal pathway or something like that. It can't be one thing leads to another and that leads to another thing. It has to be something that affects both the exposure and the outcome. There are certain ways to fix for this. You can randomize. Obviously, in RCT, the whole purpose of doing RCT is that there is no confounding because all your, your groups are kind of similar in characteristics. You can uh, match. You can stratify. Um, logistical regression, and this is where we, we get these adjusted models that you guys read about versus the crude odd ratios. Um, illustrating this point, so up top, you know, if I were interested in doing a study, which is what I did, is acute alcohol exposure associated with in-hospital death and trauma patients. This is a study I'm doing here at Shock Trauma using the registry. Age is, potential, is a confounder, right, because those um, different age groups will have different alcohol exposures, and obviously if you're older, you're more likely to die. And that in itself goes both ways, separate from alcohol's maybe effect or association with death. But these are trauma patients, too, and, and a lot of people are, are saying, oh, you need to adjust for the injury, the, the, the severity of injury patients come in for. Well, that saying that is, in fact, not Correct, and I hope to illustrate that using this picture where injury doesn't affect alcohol exposure. If you're injured, it's not that you're going to be someone that's, uh, it doesn't go back and affect the exposure. Alcohol exposure leads to injury, which leads to death. So it's actually part, it's not saying, I'm not going to go as far as say it's part of the causal pathway, but it's part of the pathway. So injury is not a confounder, it's, it's something that is um, an intermediate outcome. And so you can't adjust an outcome with an outcome, right? Exposures are adjusted for, risk factors are adjusted for. So this is what we did. We looked at alcohol and its um, 
association with injury and an injury's association with death, and we just looked at alcohol in association with death. And what I mean by alcohol, I mean the blood alcohol content greater than zero. And what I mean by injury is injury severity scores. If you guys have seen these, they range from zero to 75 and um, give you a severity of injury. Or Glasgow Coma Score, which I know you're familiar with, and that their, their association with death. Put this in another light. This is a publication my mentor did back in the 70s to illustrate this point. And this is something that the OB Gyne group figured out a long time ago that I think we're still struggling with in, in trauma. So birth weight specific rates. So here, this study, they show, so there's a lot of good pathophysiology and, and, and biology to show that smoking leads to low birth weight. Low birth weight is a risk factor for uh, perinatal uh, mortality. And that's shown here on, on the left where smokers, they have a higher mortality than non-smokers, um, perinatal mortality. Now, if I were to stratify this and now adjust for the birth weight of the baby, uh, taking something out of the causal pathway and now calling it a confounder, now all of a sudden I see that smoking is protective. Those who smoke had a lower mortality than those who didn't smoke in the under 2,500 gram group, as well as in the 2,500 gram and over group. And this occurs because smoking has such a stronger effect on the birth weight than it does, it still has an effect on mortality, but it's just not as strong that you get more of those patients in the uh, low birth weight group and the deaths now in proportion are less. So now all of a sudden you look like you've, you've just made a, an epiphany and you're thinking smoking is protective and everyone should smoke to prevent perinatal mortality. Obviously we know this is not true, and, but this is an example of, stratis, of, of uh, stratifi stratification to kind of adjust. So when I went into the literature review, you know, it's, it's surprising. I, I found all the studies on trauma and looking at alcohol exposure and death to be adjusting for injury. Here are 10 studies, some published in JAMA, some published in Journal Trauma, highly cited. Um, they all looked at injury assessment in certain ways, and they all adjusted, or most of them adjusted for injury assessment. And the results are mixed. I can't tell you, based on these studies, if it's good, bad, or, or, or not to have alcohol exposure and, and hospital death. There are studies that show you that there is no effect on, on it. There are studies that show you that there's an increased risk, and the studies that show you it's protective. And some of you guys who work more in trauma are, have probably heard, just kind of in conversations, the protective effect of alcohol and, and traumatic brain injuries, potentially. But this is a big issue that the studies are doing, is they're adjusting for that injury, when in fact they shouldn't be. Okay. To make my point more clear, I went ahead and, and ran these stats myself to show how this is affected. So on the right, on, excuse me, on your left, I went ahead and just looked at, at blood alcohol content and death. And I adjusted for age, sex, and race. This was 42,000 patients, so you can't argue that the sample size is small. This is out of our shock trauma registry. And it, it, there was an increased odds ratio, but it wasn't significant. Okay? Fine. That's acceptable. This I'm calling over-adjusted because now I included uh, Glasgow Coma Score in that. And I adjusted for, for people who came with traumatic brain injuries, mechanisms of injury, and people who came in with hypotension or, or shock, maybe. Now, all of a sudden, I can show you that blood alcohol content is having alcohol in your system, any alcohol in your system is protective and keeps you alive versus those that weren't. Similarly, if I did it with injury severity score, all of a sudden it looks protective and I have misleading results. And I can go the other way. I looked at alcohol dependence and tobacco use as other risk factors and when I looked at this more closely, what I realized is if you come to shock trauma and you survive the first couple of hours, you're probably gonna survive shock trauma. It's those people who die within the first hour or two that, that 
so it's the people that deaths occur mostly in the first couple of hours. And you can imagine those first couple of hours, no one here arrives dead on arrival, by the way. Everyone comes in getting some form of resuscitation. And I think you guys have seen that. And no one goes through the ER. That's, that's the unique thing about shock trauma. Everything's by medevac or ambulance. It's a unique location, and we're a statewide EMS system. So most of the deaths occur if they're going to occur right away. So you can imagine, you don't get chest radiographs on these people. You don't get blood draws. So now all of a sudden, someone that might have an alcoholic is, is categorized in the registry as not an alcoholic. And most of these people who died being in the first couple hours. And uh, now I show you that alcohol dependence and tobacco use are very protective. And they make blood alcohol exposure look like it's harmful. So I've, I've, I can lead the results in the other direction. So I, I think it's very important, and I hope I get the point across by using these examples, to understand what your confounders are, what your mediators are, and how they should be used in your data collection and analyses. Now let's talk about the results. Just want to check and see how I'm doing on time. Good. So let's look at measures of effect. So here's four questions for you guys to think amongst yourselves. And I want you to think which is the best. Program A, reduced rate of death by 20%. Program B, produce absolute reduction in deaths by 3%. Program C, increased patient survival rate from 84 to 87%. Program D, which meant 31 people needed to enter the program to avoid one death. Which one of these is the best or the most effective? And this was a survey done to um, board members of district health authorities in England. They sent it out to 180 people, 140 responded, and only three caught on to the trick question, which is that they're all the same. These are all showing the results same results in different ways, okay? So let's talk about these. So what I, what I these examples just discussed was a risk ratio, relative risk reduction, odds ratio, absolute risk reduction numbers needed to treat. You guys have come across these and come across them over and over and over. And I think you should start calculating them when you look at your RCTs and figuring things out for yourself. So let's just go through these examples. So here's a classic two-by-two two table that we use. Uh, left being the treatment, um, and then the um, dead and alive being our outcome. This was cabbage over 10 years, um, looking at the 10-year outcome. And those that receive medical therapy, those receive cabbage. You can see numbers in dead and alive in total. So the risk of medical therapy is 404. Those uh, that died over the total group, a 13, 21, 30 percent chance of being dead at 10 years. The, the risk of cabbage is 26 percent chance of being dead at 10 years. Okay, so we've, we've gotten the term risk down for these two groups. What's the relative risk of death? Well, it's simply the cabbage divided by the medical group. So that's the 87% um, uh, or relative risk of 0.87 is usually how it's reported. And that's the risk in cabbage patients compared with controls. So they do better. Relative risk reduction is one minus that. So that's just 13% uh, by which the risk of death is reduced relatively between the uh, cabbage group and the medical treatment group. Absolute risk reduction is just the 30% minus the 26%. That's the 4% absolute amount by which cabbage reduces risk of death at 10 years. Number needed to treat, that's just, the one, that's just one divided by absolute risk reduction. So 24 patients need a cabbage in order to prevent, on average, one death uh, by 10 years. And that's taking one divided by 0.04. Odds ratio. So odds ratio is, is like risk ratio, but different. Um, I'll tell you how to calculate, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So this is the odds of dying compared to odds of surviving. So we're talking about odds here, so not 
uh, risk ratio of like one out of 10, this is one to nine. Um, inpatient's medical treatment versus cabbage. So that's simply taking within group uh, distribution. So 404 divided by 921, whereas in relative risk, you did 404 divided by 1324. And you take that divided by 350 divided by 974, whereas before you did 350 divided by 1325. And you get something similar. You get 0.82, which is not far off from the 0.87. But we grasp relative risk a lot easier. When I tell you there's a relative risk of 2, that is telling you there's a two-fold increase in risk. Whereas I tell you odds ratio of 2, that is telling you the odds of exposure is 100% greater of the outcome than the odds of not exposure. So it's a little bit more difficult to understand odds, but that's odds ratios are used more because that's what are produced in the statistical tests. So another way of showing this, so odds ratios approximates relative risk if the disease is rare. And that's illustrated here in this graph. So you can see the relative risk in something with an incidence outcome of 0.01, very low, and a relative risk of 7 will give you an odds ratio close to 7. But as you get something that has an incidence outcome that's more common, the relative risk and odds ratios don't match, and it, it falls apart. And why is this? Well, it's simple math if, if you just kind of sit down and look at what you can do afterwards even. Um, the relative risk here, numerator A over A plus B, so if A was really low, then it's similar to just A over B, and that's the odds ratio. This is the relative risk, okay? And that's the numerator, and this is the denominator, and so if you take those together, same idea. So you can see that it's very similar. So the relative risk is taking the disease and non-disease, the exposed and non-exposed, and taking the, re the relation of that, whereas odds ratio is going the distribution within the group, so from the yes to no and, and the C to the, uh, the D, within the group, absolute risk, and so the distribution, although you can increase the numbers, can, will look the same, but the uh, relative risk will be different. And let's, let's, I can show this to you best by an example. So here's the two two-by-two two tables. The control group here is half of the control group here. That's the only thing I changed. So you go from 2 to 4 and 20 to 40. If you do the odds ratio, which is just taking the calculations of 10 times 20 over 2 times 5, which is a shortcut, um, you get 20. If you do the relative risk, which is taking 10 over the whole group of 12 over 5 over the whole group of 25, you get 4.2. Now, if you double that, you can see now all of a sudden this ratio of the exposed to the total group is going to change, and it's going to change the relative risk to 6.4. But the odds of within group distribution, it's still similar. It's not going to change. So the odds ratio remains the same. Number needed to treat. I think this is a good way to take the p-value and, and tell you if it's really useful clinically. So if a high-quality drug uh, RCT was performed, drug S X reduced mortality by 20%. So number needed to treat, remember, is one over the absolute risk reduction. So if the control group in scenario one here went from 50%, intervention group had a mortality of 40%, the absolute risk reduction is 10%. Same relative risk reduction, but absolute risk reduction was 10%, and it's, it was significant. Scenario two, they did a huge study, and so even though it went from 5 to 4%, it was significant because the sample size was so large. Absolute risk reduction was 1%. Relative risk was still 20%, and this is where number and treat puts things into context. Now, all of a sudden, you see that you need to treat 10 people to get one saved, whereas in this scenario two, you need to treat 100 to get one saved. So I think number and treat helps you put things in perspective about you know, how practical or, or how feasible is, is this intervention.
Okay, so let's use some examples. So you guys are probably familiar with the Caesar trial. Um, <clears throat> this came out after H1N1. Technology improved, coordinated care in ICU. ECMO is becoming more, uh, more used. So this was the first randomized study of ECMO in adult patients in over 15 years and largest ever. 180 patients, ages 18 and 65 years old, were analyzed. Basically, people who were in ARDS, that's what the MERI score was. It's poor lung compliance, oxygenation was an issue. But they weren't so far off that it wasn't salvageable, which is why they excluded pe people with a high inspiratory pressure or um, really severe um, requirements. And they randomized them one-to-one. -one. Those who got stayed at the center they were at and got conventional treatment, and those who got transferred to an ECMO center. And that was the intervention. They got transferred to an ECMO center, not that they received ECMO. And they evaluated for death or severe disability. So this was either or. This is what's called a composite outcome. It wasn't just looking at death separate from severe disability. It could be one or the other. Severe disability being that you can go and perform your ADLs or you can get out of bed um, on your own. And this was looking six months out. Their conclusion was it was appropriate to transfer adults with severe ADS to a center with ECMO-based management protocol. A lot of lay people's conclusion was we should be using ECMO in these patients. Okay, so looking at the nitty-gritty, they screened 766 patients from 148 centers. That's pretty impressive. 180 got enrolled according to inclusion criteria, but 108 got excluded, not because they were necessarily met exclusion criteria, just because there wasn't availability of a bed. No ECMO bed was available, so maybe there's some bias there. Best practice was used without a protocol. So they were transferred to a single site. There was this transfer was done to this one site where it was a site that had a world expert in ARDS and a, a, a coordinated center of protocolized care, people who were familiar with the condition and, and dealt with it all the time. And if they were unresponsive after 12 hours of using their conventional treatment, they went to VV ECMO. So not everyone ended up receiving ECMO because they were able to, to save or salvage some of these people. 75% ended up receiving ECMO. And I bet you, and, and it wasn't that they only looked at those 75% when they did the analysis. And if you take those people that didn't receive ECMO out, it, it takes away all their significance. Of those people that didn't receive ECMO, 80% survived. So 14 of those 17 patients uh, ended up still surviving. So, I mean, it was, it was that they got maybe uh, adequate care, care but their, their uh, survival rate was very different from the ARDSNET trial, the ARMA trial that, that showed the use of low tidal volume uh, conventional treatment. So that was another argument. Okay, now let's actually look at this. So if we went ahead and, and looked at the results, here are the results that they, they make basic conclusion on. 90 people that got ECMO, 90 people that got conventional management group, or 90 people that not got ECMO, they went to the ECMO group. Um, death or disability at six months, Obviously, there was a less in the ECMO group than in the conventional group. Uh, absolute risk reduction was impressive and relative risk. But look, there was three people that there was no information about severe disability. Now, I went ahead and did the math for you. If I took those three people and put them in a no group and then put those three people in the yes group and kind of looked at it separately, what they showed as being a, a protective uh, decreased risk, those that got those th three people put into the no group, now your number is 44, the relative risk goes to 0.72, and now the significance is lost. So this is missing data that, that wasn't accounted for and, and could go either way. If they put in a yes group, then it became more significant, and, and the risk was even more um, decreased. So I don't know. I, I don't know what to take away from this study. Um, I think it was an important study. I think there's I, what I took away is that you should be uh, sent to a center that, that is familiar with ARDS and, and treats it well. Not necessarily the ECMO is going to save your life.
So the composite outcomes. So I told you that this was death or this severe disability. So I like to talk a little about composite outcomes. And we see these a lot more in our critical care trials. Composite outcome is a summary of outcome assessed for each patient using multiple factors. So it's event rate or time to event. So looking at death and hospitalization and chest pain and um, falling out of bed all together as, as an event. Um, it could be clinical signs and symptoms all combined to one, uh, one measure. But the problem with it is they're not all the same. There's different pathophysiologies, there's different risks involved, and all-cause mortality is not the same as a cause-specific mortality, like looking at just death from a heart attack versus death from anything, which is not the same as looking at chest pain, and it's not the same as looking at uh, a dye study that shows uh, blockage without symptoms. But they can certainly be combined altogether as one outcome and accounted for. To show you how often this is used, uh, two group randomized cardiovascular clinical trials between 2000 and 2007, 14 leading journals, 37% of the time they use composite endpoints. Why use it? Well, it makes, it, it makes your sample size need to be smaller and you can do a smaller trial for, for uh, uh, more composites. Sometimes you get carried away and your, your endpoints end up costing you more money because of studies and diagnostics, but an example down here, this, these were slides taken from my mentor. Um, if you had a power of 0.9, alpha of 0.05, relative risk of 0.65, um, you know, 20% to 40%, you've cut your patients in half. So if you include more events, more out, out endpoints, um, then you can certainly decrease the number of patients you need to study. So you get higher event rates. So let's look at an example. So this is the Constantinides trial. This is looking at submassive pulmonary embolism back in early 2000. So is heparin plus alteplase more effective than heparin alone in submassive PE? So 49 centers in Germany, pretty impressive. 256 patients with acute PE and RV dysfunction or strain or pulmonary hypertension. So they didn't, they didn't go into shock. They weren't massive, but they were submassive. Exclusion criteria was contraindications to alteplase. So 137 got heparin, and 118 got both heparin and alteplase. And they looked at the combined endpoint of in-hospital death uh, or clinical deterioration requiring escalation of treatment. So escalation of treatment was they got ACLS, they got intubated, they got pressors, they got uh, secondary thrombolysis, or they got sent for thrombectomy. So there's five more endpoints I just, or outcomes I, and I added on. Their conclusion was that heparin plus alteplase reduced the combined endpoint in hospital death and clinical deterioration requiring escalation of treatment more than did heparin alone. So, you know, to me, the controversy still continues, and I don't necessarily give alteplase for submassive PEs. And, and why is that? I don't know. Well, Kap Kaplan-Meier curve here shows that heparin plus alteplase is better. There's, there's more survival in that group compared to the heparin plus placebo, and that's shown at each time point. Uh, down here is always higher, and the survival is always higher in heparin plus alteplase than placebo. But let's actually look at the data. So the primary endpoint of death. So the heparin plus alteplase group, four people died. Heparin plus placebo, three people died. So in terms of death, there was no difference. Maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe they need more, they did need a higher sample size to see if they could find a difference, but at least in this here, there wasn't any. And then the, looking at the secondary, the, I'm sorry, the, the remainder of the composite outcome. So that could have been catecholamine infusion, not significant. Endotracheal intubation, intubation, not significant. Resuscitation, embolectomy, not significant. It was secondary thrombolysis that ended up being significant. And this was after 
uh, patients were unblinded and they decided whether to give alteplase or not. So obviously the, the patient was doing worse, they got unblinded, they decided the patient hadn't gotten alteplase, so they give alteplase. So now this is what drove the whole results of the study to say in hospital death and the um, escalation of care is reduced with alteplase and heparin and submassive PE. Well, not really. So my last point is looking at subgroup analysis. Um, again, a, a study that I learned um, in my epi class. So the subgroup analyses, we see these a lot. Evaluation of treatment effects for a specific outcome in subgroups of patients defined by baseline characteristics. So you'll, you'll see a, a New England Journal trial, you know, they, they looked at 20 baseline characteristics and they go back and look at those uh, baseline characteristics and see if they can find a difference. The example I'm going to use is Lancet study, the ISIS-2, which is looking at streptokinase and aspirin. And um, I think my mentor taught me, and I'm convinced that this is probably one of the best trials of the 20th century. So I, gave, I sent it to you guys in attachment. I encourage you guys to read it just to see what an impressive trial this was. Um, but the problem with subgroup analysis is the problem of multiplicity. So if I have 20 baseline characteristics and I look at them 20 times and I'm looking for a p-value of 0.05, then I'm going to find one to be statistically significant by, by chance. That's the one out of 20. That's the 5%. And in fact, you can, you, there's an equation you can use to determine probability that at least one test will be significant. That's 1 minus, 1 minus alpha, which is the significance level, which is the 0.05, to kappa, which is the number of characteristics you're looking at, so 20. And probably that I will find at least one to be significant is 64%. So if I do enough and I look and I look at enough, I will find something that I can claim as a, a positive finding in my subgroup analysis. You'll see people do Bonferroni corrections in there, and they'll explain that. And that's basically where they take that p-value and divide by the number of tests they're doing. So now all of a sudden, their p-value requirement is 0.0025 to define a level of significance. Fine, it makes it more rigorous, but uh, my argument is if you've done an RCT and you've gone through all the trouble to randomize, so there is no difference in baseline characteristics, why is it now that you're going later on to look for a difference. It just kind of defeats the purpose. So I guess what I'm trying to say is don't, subgroup analysis don't mean anything except maybe hypothesis generating. And, and to make the point, I used the ISIS-2 trial, um, which is 17,000 patients. It was a factorial design of 417 hospitals. This was a trial that showed that streptokinase plus aspirin was better than streptokinase alone, better than aspirin alone, better than neither for patients that develop MIs. Okay, this, this, was, this is what's kind of led to our management today. And this was shown in reinfarction, stroke, or death, vascular, and all-cause mortality after 15 months of follow-up. But the editors wanted a subgroup analysis performed because they got 17,000 patients. So what did Richard, Richard Pito and the authors do? They decided to look at the astrological sign of these patients. Okay, fine. So Gemini, if, you had a Gemini, if you're a Gemini or Libra, you had a slight adverse effect of aspirin. Uh, uh, there was a slight adverse effect of aspirin on mortality. All other signs are better off. You're safe. You'll live. So I don't know how many of you guys are Gemini Libra, but you're screwed. So. so my conclusion is I, I think the theme was here, just trust no one, suspect sabotage, critique the methods section first, figure what results you want to answer your questions, um, understand the results, and, and do your own results. Do, figure out your own relative risks. Um, it's easy enough to do. They give you the numbers. Figure out your number needed to treat, your absolute risk reduction, because this is really kind of where they won't tell you, and you, you can figure out on your own and re realize what's um, maybe give you a little bit more light into the subject. Thanks.
Any questions, anyone? I know I spoke fast. Yeah, I'm still trying to absorb. Sorry. So, no, this is, uh, is excellent. Um, so what, how do you take that approach and practically apply it to uh, when you're in front of a journal? Let's say, you know, you have lots of studies. I, it, it seems, I mean, it's such a necessary, but it's a uh, necessarily cumbersome approach to approach every study. You know, and so um, it's, I just find it from, like, personally with, uh, without formal, you know, statistics training as you have to uh, really know, you know, I guess to have the, have the time or the right sort of approach to, um, you know, a blind approach to a study. How do you, yeah. I mean, you know, take that to the, you know, I, Yeah, the I, I think, I think the, the whole purpose of Journal Club is to ask your questions there. So my, my suggestion is go straight to the method section of that study and look at it, and, and what you don't understand is what you should be asking about. Maybe it, it is a, a, a concept statistically that, um, that someone else can explain to you so you understand it because you'll see it again. Or maybe it's, it's a flaw or something that was uh, not addressed in the study that you can't figure out. You know, probably the best thing to do before going to Journal Club is become familiar with the consort guidelines and what's expected nowadays of uh, clinical trials or uh, observational studies as STROBE guidelines. These are acronyms. Um, most journals you try and submit to, will you have to follow these, these guidelines. So first become familiar with what's expected of these studies and see if they follow those guidelines in the method section. If they didn't or if they did, ask your questions in Journal Club. Yeah, yeah John. Yeah, I, so what, what are red flags to look for in high-impact journals? Um, I, I think it takes practice. I'm not even good at it, but one thing I start to look at now, I, I look at, I, now that I've seen enough of these uh, people, I look at the authors, where they come from, what sponsors came from it. Sometimes I actually go to clinicaltrials.gov and see how they intend to start off this trial is actually how they're reporting it and what other trials were done with it. And if all those things are kind of uh, iffy to me, like, some, you know, I think there's a lot of politics in publications, and I saw it happen in my old institution where they were doing a presser study comparing dopamine and levofed, and, and they chose the European trial group because they, um, they, they took some of their analyses and applied it in their own because they're just more well-known. So I, I'll look at see if there's industry sponsorship, you know, where the people that always publish and maybe they get published because they're bigger names. And I look at clinicaltrials.gov to see what's been done or what was expected to be done. When you were reading the articles, do you do kind of a full read through first and then go back and do your critiquing, or do you read and critique kind of at the same time? Yeah, great question. I, I kind of, you know, these articles are jam packed with information. They, they get a word count limit and, and they put so much detail in such little space. So I kind of get my first impression and do a read-through. I'll read an article. I mean, I'll have to read it over and over. And even then, I still don't get it. And I'll look at the editorial on the article, and they'll bring to light things that I didn't pick up. So sometimes if you look at an article that you're questioning, you, you might find editorial on it that, that um, confirms what you thought. Because you know, some of these, a lot of these journals will get uh, people to write editorials or critiques of those articles. ACP Journal Club is actually a really good uh, place to look as well. Um, that's within the, um, AM, uh, it's part of the AMA, I think, I don't know. But um, 
they, they do a nice critique of landmark or sentinel articles. Thanks, Machine. Thanks.